0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's
1: quince.com slash upgrade. The The Telegraph. Podcasts.
2: I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest Today, we examine President Zelensky's warning that Russia is considering carrying out a terrorist attack at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Report on a Ukrainian strike against a bridge in Crimea and hear from attendees at the Ukraine Recovery Conference.
1: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory.
0: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's gonna break us.
2: We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our team's reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 22nd of June, one year and 118 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor of Defence, Dominic Nichols, our Senior Foreign Correspondent, Roland Oliphant, and coming to us live from the Recovery Conference, former Ukrainian MP, Aliona Klivko. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the battlefront.
1: So last night, more air attacks across Ukraine. Russia fired cruise and ballistic missiles and drones across Ukraine early hours of, of this morning. Damage in Odessa on the Black Sea and the city of Krivory, which is about 100k west of Zaporizhia. This is um, from Ukrainian officials. They say air defense shot down three of the four drones uh, and the other missiles included three Kinzel hypersonic missiles, three cruise missiles. They didn't say how many of those were shot down or got through. But in the statement, Ukrainian air defenders said, the enemy rockets did not reach their targets in the Dnipro region. The occupiers are continuing their terror against the Ukrainian people, attacking Ukraine's critical infrastructure facilities. That came from the Air Force, sorry. in Odessa, one of the missiles hit a warehouse. That's uh, as per the regional Administrative spokesperson Sergei Bratchuk. We said some time ago that actually, as Russia now pretty much unable to in the short and medium term get around the corner around around in, in the Herson region, the threat, the ground threat to Mikolayev and Odessa, has largely been removed. So expect lots of punitive missiles to be fired in there, achieving next to nothing but just you know mucking around on the green deal and all that kind of that kind of stuff, and just generally being very annoying. Elsewhere, what else is there? So there was a big strike last night on one of the bridges connecting the Hezon region to Crimea. So this comes from Russian-appointed officials in both regions, but there's lots of social media footage and commentary about it. Um, so the Chonar Bridge, which is one of a number linking Crimea to mainland Ukraine, was assessed likely to have been a storm shadow that hit it. There's images you can see, a big hole in the road and the the reinforced concrete there. There's clear, clear holes. The authorities, Russian uh, the temporary authorities there have said that that traffic's been diverted to a different route. No casualties reported. Well, I'll come back to that in a moment. Now, uh, the Russian appointed governor in Crimea said that specialists were examining the site uh, to determine whether traffic can, can go over it. This bridge is it's known as the gate to Crimea. We're about 120 k's behind the, the front line, so it probably would be a... A storm Shadow. They're going to see if traffic can resume. So, this area, if you picture the bit where Crimea meets the rest of Ukraine, put an east west line running across there, sort of flat line running across east west there at the top of Crimea. This bridge is about three quarters of the way. On the right-hand side. So if you if you start on the start on the west, head over to the east. Three quarters of the way, that's where you hit this bridge. Now you will see images on social media showing civilian cars blown to the side of the road, lying up against the barriers. Some are on their roofs, um, suggesting that that all happened in in the strike. I, I suppose to try to say that a lot of civilians were killed, but. Have a look at Elliot Higgins from Bellingcat. He's posted footage of the same cars in the same positions from last year on a Russian video, which at the time it was thought that they had been shoved out of the way by Russian forces as they came north over the bridge. Anyway, have a look on Twitter at Elliot Higgins's post. You can make your own mind up there. But it looks like the images might not be fake because they, I think the cars are there, but the inference that it happened this morning and um, and it was Ukraine, I think is false, but uh, you can make your own. Mind up. Elsewhere, there's been a lot of reaction to President Zelensky's comments about the um, Ukraine's counter-offensive. So he said on his video message um, last night, he acknowledged that the, the progress of the counteroffensive had been slower than hopeful uh, and said this was likely due to the effective Russian defensive. Now, the ISW, Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, we, we talk about them a lot. They are very credible. They have previously said that the Russian forces doctrinally sound defensive. They've 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 built the defense properly there in Western Zaporizhia and sort of southern Ukraine bit. They've they've done that correctly. They are slowing Ukrainian advances. In that area, Russia has a forward defensive line that has been constructed over months um, with good overhead cover. Tank traps, minefields, the full works—they are covering that line well with observation and troops. Now that sounds obvious, but one without the other just just isn't going to work. And it's not always guaranteed that everywhere can be covered by both all the time. If you've got um, if you've got troops there but no no surveillance assets, you can't see what's coming. You don't get any warning, so that denudes the defense. If you've got surveillance asset but no troops to do anything about it. Equally, that's pretty rubbish. So you need both, but it's a it's a big old line. Now, crucially, Russia has got mobile reserves in that area, which you do need in a, as a defence to move, to rapidly reinforce any areas of under particular strain. So that front line, that forward line of defences, is well built and they are doing it correctly. Um, hence the very slow rate of progress from, from Ukraine. Ukrainian officials have long signalled that the... Counteroffensive would be a series of gradual and sequential offensive actions. And they say the current activity is not the main thrust yet, which I tend to agree with. ISW, in their assessment, they're saying that any counteroffensive shouldn't be judged solely on the day to day changes in um, control of terrain. And as the wider operational intentions, of Ukrainian attacks along the entire front line that are build they'll be used to degrade exhaust and expend Russian capabilities in preparation for later pushes. Now, I do agree with that assessment. We've we've talked about this for for a long time. I think broadly we should think about offensive action as either being there to take ground, which you know is obviously the ultimate aim, but it doesn't always have to be the immediate aim. Offensive action can also be for, for a load of other reasons. It can be there to identify the enemy's main positions. It could be to get the enemy to commit their reserves, because once they're gone, they've got you know, nothing to rely on. It could also be just to, to wear down the enemy. Think about the fighting around, around Bakhmut. And it could also be to stop the enemy from being able to use those resources elsewhere. So there's a whole load of reasons why offensive action takes place. I think Ukraine are are testing adjusting they they're seeing what they can do they're seeing how effective their offensive action is and how effective Russian defense is so I would suggest we don't read too much into the reports of how well they're doing it'll be it'll be weeks before we can tell that but I would I would use the outpouring of of frothy analysis saying Ukraine is finished um, and they can't, uh, they, they can't do anything and, you know, all the rest of it. I would use those to helpfully highlight who the idiots in the room are, um, highlight which accounts we can all stop following and where, uh, where these so-called experts um, need to go back to their books, spend a bit more time with the, uh, you know, the likes of Sun Tzu, Klaus Fitz and um, obviously the OG of the lot, Francis Dernley.
2: less less Sun Tzu more Sun Who I think in my case Uh, but thanks though Don before I go to discussing political updates you addressed the House of Commons Defence Select Committee yesterday wearing a very Swiss jacket and tie combo it must be said what were you asked about? So I was asked to speak to the Defence Select Committee this is all about
1: military procurement I buying and, and building stuff and the, the central question so why is the British Army in particular but the forces more broadly but the British Army in particular in recent years just seems to have got themselves in a the right old pickle over procurement basically you know, an army is uh, essentially needs needs big green boxes on tracks and wheels, loads of guns um, and some people inside them okay that 's generally what you know an army builds needs now that 's not been revamped for Decades in the in the British Army, we've spent three billion pounds on Ajax, which is the new recce vehicle, reconnaissance vehicle. But it's heavier than when the Chieftain tank was first brought in. So it's, you know, we, we like to think of recce vehicles being light, nimble. They can zip around the battlefield. They don't get seen. Well, this thing's pretty enormous, and it's and it's not in yet. And then Ajax is supposed to be just the carrier for Morpheus. Morpheus being the digital spine of the future battlefield. And I hear that Morpheus as a comms system. In all sorts of trouble as well. You know, contrast that with countries like um, Estonia and some of the other members of the of the NATO alliance, where you know I've probably got it. I'm probably a bit out of date, but I think Estonia has got just very very low figures, low um, dozens of people in, in their entire procurement branch, and yet they seem to be able to update themselves much much quicker, much more effectively. And there is an argument for having a very clear idea of what your biggest threats are, uh, what role you want to play. Either in an alliance, or if you want to try and do everything yourself, and then what your priorities are, and if you get that thinking right, then you you know it should be fairly straightforward, maybe, but less complicated than we seem to make it. There are two things to think about here. There's there's COTS, which is called which is known as commercial off the off the shelf. So you know, quick, you can just go and buy it. You, you see the you see the thing you like in service somewhere else. You just go and buy it. So it can be quick, you can have fixed costs, but of course that kit is only going to be as good as anyone else who buys the same stuff. There will be differences in training and standards and so on, but the kit itself is the same. So you then either go for MOTS, which is called military off the shelf or sometimes modified off the shelf, or a bespoke thing where you you build it all yourself. And that is very attractive because it stimulates your own defence industry. There's defence sovereignty, so you don't have to rely on other people. And you can get first-rate kit because you are buying it. It's brand new. You can put in all the new technology and so on and so forth. But if you are there, right at the leading edge of technology and innovation, things don't always go right. There's going to be cost overruns and time overruns and all the rest of it. So the the inquiry that was opened yesterday was looking into where, where are the mistakes? What, what is happening? And I was essentially arguing that, in my view, the structures and the processes and the accounting procedures are all good, are all sound in the MOD but they're just not used. Decisions don't get taken at the right time. Decisions, are, you know, can, the cans kick down the road. We come back six months later, we're talking about the same old thing. So the, all the working groups and the structures and, and what have you are there. But if you don't use them properly, then nothing ever ever happens. And then you you end up with the thing too big to fail. Ajax is now, as I say, £3 billion has been spent on it. It's going to be a brave minister, brave prime minister that cancels that programme. Yeah, there is an argument to say, well, scrap it and go and buy CV90 from, from Sweden. But that's a load of money down the drain, which which you might say, well, that's that's what you get if you're trying to break physics and bring in new stuff. You've got to kiss a lot of frogs. And, and sometimes your money's not going to immediately come back to you in terms of capability. So it's a really thorny issue. But just at the moment, in the last couple of decades, the British army in particular, and this is not doesn't mean the other two services are completely out of the woods but we just don't seem to have got that right at the moment so that was the start of the of the inquiry there will be
2: many more such sessions well thanks tom let's hope they were listening Given our extensive coverage of the issues around Zaporizhia, I'm just going to start the political segment by talking about that. President Zelensky has given a warning this morning saying that Ukrainian intelligence agencies have received information showing Russia is considering carrying out a terrorist attack at Zaporizhia nuclear plant involving a release of radiation. In a video statement on Telegram, he said Ukraine was sharing the intelligence with all of its international partners. He didn't say what this intelligence was, and he didn't say exactly what they were asserting in detail. We obviously can't verify the claims, but there are some who are arguing that it should be seen in the context of the recovery conference, which Roland will be discussing shortly. Bear in mind, though, that similar dismissals were made around Zelensky's warnings on the Kokovka Dam, and we all know what happened there. Clearly, the UN is concerned with the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, making numerous appeals to both Ukraine and Russia on his recent visit, which we reported. But is it truly inconceivable that Russia would plan some kind of incident there if they thought it would give them some kind of tactical advantage. And I think many would answer in the negative, given what we have seen in recent months. Dom, just briefly on this story, words matter in this context. Can you just give us a very quick recap of the difference between intelligence and information?
1: Yes, it is always worth... Uh, reminding ourselves of this. There is no such thing as intelligence information. It's like fingernails down a black ball for me every time I hear that. It's just horrific. So there's information and intelligence is the information plus an assessment. Now that assessment takes into account a number of things. Firstly, the reliability of the source. Has it come from a human, for example? And if so, what is that human's motivation? Has this individual been used before such that you think they're they're pretty good for their word and, and what they're offering? Are they untested? Do you think that maybe they're just telling you what they think you want to know, what you want to hear, either to get money or to get themselves out of a situation out of the country and so on and so forth? So what's the motivation there if it's human? If the source is technical, such as intercepted communications or um, intercepted electronic emissions, suggesting certain weapons or other military means are being moved about or readied for use, how definite Are those signals? Could they mean different things in different circumstances? So that's the the source of the information. And then you have to make a judgment. And An intelligence analyst then makes a judgment of how credible that information is. How likely is it to be true? And then even if the enemy has the capability, is there a precedent? So, for example, Russia has the means and opportunity to do something at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant as much as it has the means and opportunity to fire cruise missiles at schools in Kyiv. But they are viewed very differently in terms of the wider context and precedence. So the eventual intelligence, which, as I say, is the information plus all that assessment, that eventual intelligence, the production of it, if done properly, it should be shrouded in caveats. There should be all sorts of qualifying statements and footnotes and all the rest of it. You shouldn't shouldn't just say there are weapons of mass destruction over here. There should be all sorts of it saying... But that might not be, or the person telling us this might might be trying to, you know, pull our chain or X, Y, and Z. So, you know, you've got to be very, very careful when somebody is saying, This is happening. We're basing that on intelligence. You've got to think about all the, all the component parts of that, of, of what intelligence is, because it is not out-and-out out factual information. It comes through all sorts of analysis, and there are many, many ways for it to be got wrong, basically. So, yeah, always be careful if someone uses the phrase intelligence information. That, to me, is another signal that the person I'm speaking to doesn't really know what they're talking about.
2: Well, thanks for that context, Dom. Just carrying on with the political developments then. In other news, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace does not expect to succeed Jens Stoltenberg as NATO Secretary General. That's according to The Economist amid claims that the US wants the current leader, Mr. Stoltenberg, to stay. Mr. Wallace is quoted as saying in that interview, it's not going to happen. He previously said that he would like the job, but Indicates in the interview that they would like a Prime Minister instead or Mr Stoltenberg. Mr Stoltenberg, of course, is due to step down in September after nine years as Secretary General of the Military Alliance. But the bloc has really struggled to decide on a replacement ahead of the mid-July summit in Lithuania. So more on that as we have it. Staying with NATO, Britain has said it would support speedy NATO accession for Ukraine at the Alliance's summit in Vilnius. Next month. That's what the Foreign Secretary has put out this morning. James Cleverly said Britain would be very, very supportive of allowing Ukraine to skip the membership action plan, a lengthy reform process that prospective NATO allies are meant to undergo before they are allowed to apply for membership. The remarks reflect a growing consensus in Western Europe that Ukraine must join NATO after the war, but signals a possible rift between London and Washington over the timetable. As I reported yesterday, France is also believed to be supportive, which would mark a shift in position for them. But Roland will be talking about that shortly. Uh, In other news, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has also pledged that Germany will meet NATO's 2% spending target from next year. After the invasion sparked a major policy shift on defence in Berlin. Quoting from Mr. Schultz, we will ensure that the Bundeswehr finally receives the equipment it needs, also by spending 2% of our GDP on defence for the first time in decades starting next year. And he was speaking in Parliament. Quite a moment, though there remain concerns from certain figures in Berlin that due to inflation and other economic factors, in real terms, the impact on the size and scale of Germany's army may not quite match the rhetoric that came out of Berlin after the invasion of it being a Zeitenwender of a world changing moment. Indeed, Germany has sort of shifted, I think, in terms of deciding to prioritize. The support it provides for Ukraine directly, as opposed to building its own far armed forces. And it has served as one of the core providers of support to Ukraine in terms of materiel. Now, staying with Germany, Dom has spoken about the counteroffensive, and Schultz has also urged NATO leaders meeting in Vilnius next month to focus on ramping up Ukraine's fighting capacity during its ongoing counteroffensive. He said we should look soberly at the current situation. Uh, Kyiv has itself said that a NATO membership is not the question whilst NATO is carrying out its war against Ukraine. That's why I'm putting forward that we focus in Vilnius on what is now an absolute priority, that is to strengthen the fighting power of Ukraine, perhaps an indication there of a growing recognition that there are vital components needed for a major offensive to be successful, namely air power. Now, listeners will recall the story of the US reporter Evan Gaskovich, detained in Moscow, writer for the Wall Street Journal. He has been in court this morning and we've seen footage of him. He looks um, quite well, seems to be smiling given the circumstances. He's had, unfortunately, a new appeal rejected by a Moscow court against his pre-trial detention on charges of espionage. That's according to a Reuters reporter at the court. He is, of course, 31, was arrested back in March, accused by Russia's FSB of collecting military secrets in uh, Yekaterinburg and other cities, which outraged journalists and politicians around the world, as we've covered at length. His parents, who left the Soviet Union uh, for the United States in 1979, were present in the court, but the US ambassador, Lynn Tracy, was not allowed inside the room, we understand. Of course, uh, the Wall Street Journal vehemently denies the accusations against Mr. Gaskovic, who was accredited by the Russian foreign ministry. And the US says he was wrongfully detained and is demanding his release, as are many other world leaders. So that's where we are in the political world. Roland, thank you for your patience. There are a few subjects I wanted to hear your perspective on, not least the recovery conference, which I know you've also been attending. But perhaps we can start with your interview with Ukraine's Minister of Foreign Affairs. What did he say to you?
0: Yes, I was lucky enough to have a relatively lengthy conversation with Dmitry Kuleba, yesterday down at the recovery conference it was a fairly wide-ranging conversation as wide-ranging as we could make it in the the allotted space of time we covered this knotty question of ukraine's possible membership of nato we covered the counter-offensive we talked about all kinds of things the recovery conference um itself i mean starting i suppose with the counter-offensive i think it's, it's pretty topical i was speaking to him just after um, president Zelensky had told the BBC that, look, it's not going as quickly as they might have liked. And his comment was, look, there's, there's two big challenges with the counteroffensive. offensive The first and the biggest is the reliable supply of artillery ammunition. And he said that in terms of weapons diplomacy, um, Ukraine has now conquered all, all of the summits. Um, so every every category of weapons system that Ukraine has asked for over the past year is now being supplied. You can quibble about how quickly it's delivered whether it's enough things like that but fighter jets modern tanks air defense systems long-range precision missiles britain supplying a storm shadow every category has now been achieved and unlocked and that was a huge diplomatic effort um on the part of, uh, of the ukrainian foreign ministry um, but the the unconquered summit he said to me is uh, the sustainability of, of artillery ammunition and and the second problem he he talked about is um russia's dominance in the air you know he said basically the answer to that is uh, getting ukraine more helicopters more fighters of its own that raises the f-16 question of course um and more man pads, more shoulder launched anti-aircraft missiles anything that you know as he could put it could knock uh, the russians out of the sky and this this fits with our understanding of, of of what's going on, um, and, and it fits with the kind of, of what you know the Russian propagandists are putting out on their side, which is that Russia's helicopters, in particular, have played um, quite a key role in frustrating the offensive, um, and that Ukraine doesn't really have enough uh, advanced air defense systems to risk putting them in the lines. That that is one reason that the Russians are able to um, to achieve at the moment, at least temporary um air superiority Um, uh, and off the back of that of course i asked him look um you know you and i both know that events on the battlefield directly pertain to to your job to to the diplomacy um and and, and he didn't deny it and he didn't go into details but he said look you know that our allies know the objective of the of the counteroffensive. when we planned it we told them what we're trying to do they're across it but he basically conceded yes you know if, if this is not seen to succeed That is going to have a direct impact on uh, the way he put it was the way the diplomacy goes. Um, He didn't go into details. He did deny that, you know, he he maintains the line that Ukraine is not going to give up on its war aims. So Ukraine is not going to say, okay, well, um, that effort didn't work. Maybe it's time to talk. The the message is very much um, where if this if this offensive doesn't work, um, there'll be another one. This offensive shouldn't be seen as the final or the or the decisive one, there'll be as many offensives as possible in order to, until the country is liberated. And then we move on to this this NATO question, which I think is actually one of the big, big diplomatic tussles that's going on right now. So as we know, NATO members are kind of, basically squabbling between each other at the moment about what they're going to offer to Ukraine at the, uh, the leaders' summit in Vilnius next month. Um, now, Ukraine and its closest allies—the usual suspects: Britain, Poland, the Baltic states, Eastern European allies—they um, want a really serious, concrete commitment that says Ukraine is not only that Ukraine is going to be a member of NATO. They got that in two thousand and eight, but but how? You know, something that says this is definitely going to happen. Um, and we're also very aware that not everyone's on board with that. So Joe Biden said, "Well." I'm not going to make it easy for them. They're going to have to meet all the other, um, you know, they're going to have to jump through all the hoops everybody else has to. Um, Olaf Scholz has indicated that, you know, they should be focusing on getting arms to Ukraine at the moment, rather than talking about the future. But, and the, the Ukraine, I mean, the statistical labor is very clear on this. He said, look, in 2008, we were given the term used as false promise and we made ourselves believe it and we we liked we we tried to believe that something real was going to happen but that nothing happened it was in 2008 when ukraine was promised membership but not with any real kind of concrete um pathway to get there and he said look we are not going to accept that this time if if nato doesn't come up with something specific something meaningful we're not going to say okay oh well you know we can work with this we're going to say no that's not good enough we need something that plots the way to an invitation to join. Now, where are we on that? Um, I think James Cleverley's remarks and the French foreign minister's remarks yesterday make it clear that what people are thinking about is saying, okay, Ukraine will not have to fulfill the membership action plan, which is a, a very, very lengthy set of reforms, which can go on for years or decades. You know, in some cases, people have taken 20 years getting through that. I think that's that's the kind of thing people are coalescing around. That, I think, is Ukraine's minimum request, though. I think the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians see a gap between that and, and what they think is really achievable, and they're going to be pushing for some kind of formula um, in whatever is announced in Vilnius that says, um, not only does Ukraine not have to fulfil the map, but um, you know, there, there is going to be an invitation um, at some point down the line. But I think there's going to be um, a couple of weeks of very intense diplomacy. Um, around that in the uh, in the immediate future,
2: I'll come back to your reflections on the recovery conference in a few minutes. But first, we're lucky enough to have former Ukrainian MP and regular on the podcast, Aliona Hilfko, calling in from the event itself. Now, I know we don't have you for long, Aliona, but thank you for making the time. What's the general mood at the conference?
3: Indeed, the mood at the conference has been tremendously optimistic. It is very uplifting for me to see that as a Ukrainian and just to hear all the support that's being expressed by the global leaders who all gathered in London yesterday to support Ukraine, to, again, reiterate the message that the world will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes, and, of course, commit some serious loans and grants to Ukraine, which was, of course, essential to the rebuilding of Ukraine.
2: Thank you. And do you get a sense? Are people talking a lot about the counteroffensive and the perception of that? We spoke last week, you and I, about the potential damaging implications of a slower than hoped counteroffensive. Do you sense that on the ground, or are people perhaps thinking slightly longer term?
3: I suppose within these two days, yesterday, of course, it was a big political day when we saw all the global leaders come to London and speak on the support that they are willing to provide for Ukraine. Today is the second day that's focused more on business and private sector. And I suppose, as per yesterday's messages from the leaders of the countries around the world, reiterating that private sector should play a pivotal role in reconstruction of Ukraine. Today will be the day for the discussions with private sectors, financial institutions, multilateral organizations on how they could get involved in investing in Ukraine to rebuild it. So I think the conference is actually, that's probably why the mood is quite optimistic. It is focusing more on the future and the bright, victorious future, in fact where there are no longer missiles flying over everyone's heads and we can actually plan for sustainable and long-term development of Ukraine and development into a more efficient, a greener country without any history of, you know, even Soviet infrastructure trace and um, all the projects and the engineering ideas that were prevailing at that time when most of Ukraine... um, is is built by they're looking at how to improve that so it is actually quite encouraging and and very again inspiring and uplifting for me to see uh, that ukraine might actually if all goes well of course depending on so many factors uh, that ukraine might come out of it a stronger more resilient and definitely more sustainable european country now of course the topic that prevails um, in discussions both public and private amongst individuals is the conditions at which that recovery and that rebuild and all of that necessary investment will come into the country. Um, it's not so much about the counter-offensive and not so much about when the war will end, but um, about the status um, of the country, about the state of affairs within the country when the war ends. So everything from the proper good governance um, processes, to transparency, to combating corruption, um, to freedom of speech even and media and uh, the civil sector that will provide and support that transparency in the country. I suppose those are the topics that are a bit more pressing during these two days.
2: Yes, it was very interesting seeing Zelensky yesterday in his remarks before the conference opened, talking about that transformation of the country that he sought to see as part of this conference. And I think that took some people by surprise. They thought the focus would be very much still conversations around the restoration of the country purely in terms of rebuilding as opposed to actually seeing this more, I suppose, simplified westernisation of the country, at least in economic terms. Obviously, there's been a lot of conversation in recent months about about different countries' attitudes towards the war in Ukraine and towards Ukraine itself. Have you got that sense on the ground, speaking to people from various countries in Europe and around the world, or do you see a broader sense of of unity?
3: I think it's safe to say that everyone who has arrived to this conference, all the countries' representatives, heads of states and chairmen and chairwomen of the companies, they've all arrived with one uh joined agenda to help Ukraine. So everyone here is determined to keep supporting Ukraine. Therefore the atmosphere is quite positive towards Ukraine. There are no big doubts voiced apart from the ones about sustainability of investment and the security of it and of course the you know the course of, of action of the country after the war. Um, so I would say that this support is quite solid and just to build on on that point Uh, We have heard so many various opinions about, you know, the United States, for example, going into the re-election cycle and how the support for Ukraine, especially the financial one, might be dwindling down a little bit. Whereas yesterday, um, Antony Blinken just announced another uh, massive aid package of $1.3 billion. Um, And now the total U.S. financial aid to Ukraine amounts to $64 billion dollars. In total, that is an an enormous uh, sum of money. Now, of course, everyone understands that still the biggest burden of sacrifice, of fighting this war, is still on Ukraine's shoulders. But just seeing that financial support still coming is extremely reassuring. We have seen the UK uh, backing 300 billion worth of loans to World Bank for Ukraine providing their security guarantees. And I spoke about some members of parliament from the UK last night about that and how solid they were on that decision. So there's certainly no doubt about that. And of course, the EU has uh, committed $54 billion over the the next three years, 2024, all the way through 2027, to help Ukraine recover, to sustain the economy, of course, to help people get their pensions and, and all the social aid, Uh, that they need and to look at the recovery that is already ongoing, actually, because as we speak, as the missiles keep flying above Ukrainians' heads and destroying civilian infrastructure, right behind that we are seeing the the roads getting rebuilt, the big bridges going back up and many hospitals uh, getting rebuilt as we speak because that infrastructure is crucial for people's survival. So it was fascinating to see a, of course, the determination and resilience of, of the Ukrainians who there at the conference, but also all the international support that was not waning one bit.
1: Just wondered if there'd been any reaction to the news overnight that Ben Wallace seems to have counted himself out of the, the race for secretary general. I mean, he's, he's not out of it yet. The vote hasn't happened yet. But he's effectively said in an interview with our, uh, our friend and colleague Shashank at The Economist that he, he doesn't think he's going to get the job. Has there been any, any rumblings of that around the uh, conference this morning?
3: Well, interestingly enough, Dawn, just to talk about some perhaps divisions within the audience, those were um, maybe the only intrigue that was amongst many international participants as to who is going to lead NATO next. Because as we know, and you've discussed it in the podcast a few days ago, about various candidates from different countries, be it Estonia, Denmark, or the UK, Um I think the Ukrainians are definitely fully behind Ben Wallace. And we were really hoping, as much as I talked to the policymakers, they were all very much hoping that Ben Wallace, being such a strong advocate for Ukraine, will take the lead in that race. Um, That has been slightly disappointing, but I think, you know, things are still not determined yet. And the prevailing feeling was still that um, the current... Uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg will still continue being the head of NATO and that is still quite reassuring for Ukrainians. But of course, amongst the international participants, I think that race is definitely something that everyone is talking about.
2: Any other thoughts for us before you go?
3: I suppose I am really excited to hear what the private sector says about Ukraine today and tomorrow, because there's also another event organized at London Business School all day tomorrow, talking specifically to um, small, medium and large businesses from Ukraine, the UK and internationals, in fact. So seeing how private sector can get onto the agenda of rebuilding Ukraine, uh, because of course, all the necessary decisions have been made, we're going to perhaps hear more about what the view is amongst the policymakers and big businesses, for that matter, on seizing Russian assets, because that would be quite an interesting international precedent. Um, But I would be very happy to come back on the podcast within the next few days and tell you all about the meetings that I've had with businesses who are meeting in London to support Ukraine today.
2: Thanks, Aliona. We'll definitely try and get you on soon to reflect more on that. Roland, Turning back to you, you've been at the conference as well, but as a journalist, what are your observations?
0: Let's start with the positives. Um, I, I mean it it brought a lot of people together this this conference. it's a, it, it It's a very impressive show. Um, I think there's something like a thousand delegates, um, dozens of governments, um, huge number of big big name you know private industry um, is there. so as a as a show of support, as a kind of exercise in in performative propaganda very effective you know we saw the you know the speeches by rishi sunak um addresses by by zelensky um it, it very firmly um restates if it needed restating uh, western commitment and support and because simply by dint of the fact that this is about reconstruction and recovery um and it's talking about what happens after the war um that in itself kind of you know is a strong signal that the west is in this for the long haul and and that that you know that is important. Uh, I think if we weren't talking about um, you know reconstruction of Ukraine now, a lot of us would be asking, well, why are you talking about it? Um, I think that's important in terms of concrete stuff. I mean, the, the only really concrete development um, that came out of this was um, various moves towards kind of war insurance um to 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 kind of reassure to to you know reassure private investors that if you if you do invest in the reconstruction of ukraine if you go in there before the war is over or even after the war is over while there's still you know a security threat from russia um you're going to be safe um uh, mr Koleb said to me look that is important all right that that do not underestimate how important um that is but um i think i think there's definitely some gaps as well for a start the emphasis at this at this conference is all about the private sector, um, kind of obsessively. so. My understanding is that that was that was the British government's insistence, and I, I kind of suspect that's because we've got a conservative government and they're you know obsessed with the private sector. Um, it's kind of a mantra. I think the reality is that the scale of the investments and in the reconstruction um, that we're looking at is something that's going to have to be shouldered by states. Um, I, I don't think this idea that the private sector is going to do everything is um, really holds water um and and there's a lots of things that just you know people don't want to talk about so there's lots of talk about um make russia pay this is another one of the mantras um that was going around russia has to pay for the construction ultimately russia will pay for the construction well how you know the ukrainians would like to see russia's frozen assets sovereign assets as well as the assets of you know various sanctioned oligarchs um not only frozen but um, seized and reappropriated for reconstruction. Uh, but absolutely no one seems to have any kind of appetite for doing that. Um, I think partly because they're afraid of Russian retaliation for their own assets inside Russia, partly because of kind of warnings about, you know, what, what, what that does to investor confidence, uh, the euro as a, as a reserve currency, um, things like that. Um, I, I put that to Mr. Kaleva as well, and he said, look, we'll, we'll get there. Countries are reluctant to talk about that, and there is a very long difficult path to go down before we get there, but he seemed pretty confident eventually um that question will be resolved and 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 if you'll forgive just a slight i don't know a slight bit of cynicism i mean i felt and maybe this is just me and 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 you know a kind of instinctive aversion to people in nice suits in five star hotels kind of deciding the fate of the world but um there's a lot of discussion about things like reform and the conditions uh, that will be attached to Western investment in Ukraine and, and support and, and anti-corruption and, and so on and so forth. It's really a conversation for Ukrainians themselves. Um, and I assume it's taken place, but it would have been nice, I think, um, to see it approached slightly from the other way um, about the, the, the social contract, because all these questions about how much money are you going to get? Um, how is it going to be spent? Um all of that um actually leads to a much, much bigger question, which is the question of what kind of a country is Ukraine going to be after the war? What kind of a country are Ukrainians going to have after the war? And it's all very well talking about X billion pounds from the World Bank, things like that. But 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 what's what's the social contract going to be for the guys and, and the women who've been asked to make immense sacrifices? Um you know to win this war um you know what, what what part of the state is going to be i don't know you know privatized, what's the healthcare system going to look like what's what's education's going to look like um all these kinds of things that is obviously you know it, it's a major question it's not a new question um it's a question that's come up perennially um especially since you know the the 2014 revolution because um that was partly about that and and part of the answer is there is a big consensus about moving towards um the european union about gaining uh membership of the european union and and that of course entails you know certain reforms and having an economy in a certain place but there are very very big questions to be answered um which i think only really ukrainians can answer about you know the shape of post-war ukraine what this country is going to look like and what it means, not for kind of you know the balance sheets of of investments or kind of you know the World Bank's reports, but what it means for uh, you know ordinary individual Ukrainians, how it is going to affect their lives um, in the future.
1: Just on the on the sort of hard security side of the conference, what chats were there about security guarantees, in as much as the, the EU being seen as as having some uh, a stronger. Voice here. A lot of the chat about Ben Wallace suggesting he's not in the running anymore for NATO Secretary General is the thought that actually it should come from if it's a European country, should be somebody inside the EU. Which is, you know, suddenly the EU is being thought of as a much greater hard power actor than it than it has hitherto. I wonder if there was any chat about that around the around the bazaars and just generally was it was it a quite a quite an upbeat conference in terms of people were seeing business opportunities and the future and who's going to do what deals or was there w- almost overlooking the fact that there's a massive a massive hurdle to get over before that can really be uh, engaged with
0: well the, f- the first thing is to issue the caveat dom which is that um, you know the press at these things are kind of you know the the absolute underclass um and press access was actually pretty pretty bad so the ability to kind of mingle around and and talk to people and get the sense of what was going on was limited we were kind of confined to a, uh, a press area at the back you had to basically speak to other journalists um you know at certain points um people would come and give press conferences um and if you wanted to go to the toilet you had to be escorted um so i must say it was not an especially transparent um conference and and that of course hinders my ability to tell you um what the mood was in all those kind of casual conversations um, i would say that the the real security question that everyone was talking about was this NATO thing, um, actually. And and it came up again and again. And and any kind of, you know, Ukrainians and and kind of supporters of Ukrainians that I noticed kind of watching the video feed since I wasn't allowed to be in the hall um, of people, you know, ministers from the Baltic States, for example, they're always banging the table, talking about the talking about this thing coming up about, we have to get Ukraine into NATO. That is the ultimate guarantee of security so that this war doesn't happen um, again. Um, and my own impression, and it's the kind of thing I've picked up from little scraps and conversations here and there, I probably couldn't, you know, properly source it if you asked me, but my impression is that perhaps the conversation about NATO is kind of moved a little bit further even than um the conversation about um europe because of course ascension to europe is going to be very very you know a long and, and and lengthy process um and i i came away kind of thinking maybe you know if, if the french and the brits are serious about kind of pushing to wave map and things like this um you know maybe we will actually end up with maybe next year or something a formal invitation for for ukraine to join nato while the long slog of getting into europe is kind of kick down the road a little bit further. That said, I mean, there was talk about, you know, look, um, ultimately this is strengthening the the European single market because Ukraine is going to be in the EU. So, you know, it's great for European companies to go and invest there um, and things like that.
2: It is the end of our time, unfortunately. So it is the time for our final thoughts. Dom, can I start with you? So I have been thinking about this counter-offensive and I'm trying to
1: wonder when it's going to change from a a verb to a noun for starters. And what I mean by that is um, a verb is a very active word. It's it's all very um, very busy and it's got a start, a middle and an end. And it, I think it can set unrealistic expectations. We we look to, when we talk about the counter-offensive as a, as a verb, we look to it to have a clearly defined action. Um, any opaque finish confuses and upsettles us and not only as a verb we expect it to do things, but we, in the context of a counteroffensive, we expect those things to be large, impressive, clear in purpose, and very obvious when it's, when it's finished and finished successfully. So I think we should think of it more as a noun, just as a thing, as a tree. A tree is a tree. A tree is a small tree, a big tree you don't expect much from a tree. It's just a tree. It's a, it's it satisfies being a tree, whether it's a small tree or or whatever else. So I think a counteroffensive should be thought of more as a as a noun, and we should not allow preconceived ideas of success or failure to dominate our thinking. Um, we shouldn't allow narrative more broadly to decide for us or to shape for us whether or not we remain engaged with the war and. I'm suggesting that we should think of it more of as a, as a, I say, as a, as a noun. And then perhaps once, once this counteroffensive has won the, the battle to be a noun, it can then move on to an even bigger enemy, which is the definitive article. And we stop calling it the counteroffensive and just see it as a counteroffensive because there are going to be many, many more of these. So I just think we should be very, very careful and very aware of our language and what it's doing to us and, um, and how we're framing this thing as we discuss it.
2: Indeed. Well, thank you very much, Dom. Roland, you've got the very final thoughts for today.
1: I would
0: note that in in many Slavic languages, at least in Russian, there is no definite or indefinite article. Um, So you can kind of, you know, apply the or an a as you see fit. Uh, (laughs) Riffing off what Dom just said. Um, I think, okay, two things. Um, In terms of this conference and recovery, I think it is important to talk about um, you know, the future of Ukraine, recovery, signal, that commitment, and things like that. Um, it's easy to talk, though. Um, and, and I think one of the blunt truths is that the sooner the war is over, um, the less it's going to cost everybody to rebuild because there'll be um, less damage. Um, and <laughs> just, it's just a, a little anecdote. So I last spoke to Dmitry Kuleba in December 2021, just before the war. He was in London and he basically told me, um, we are looking for air defense systems. We have a huge hole. That's our weakness. We need air defense. That's what I'm asking people for. Well, it was in December last year, so literally a year after he was kind of, you know, in the run-up to the war pleading um for these things. It was only in December last year, 12 months later, that the Americans said, Okay, oh well, actually you can have patriot missile systems. Um and we've seen the same thing over and over again as, as we've talked about um continuously. Um on this podcast, the tanks, the F 16s, things like that. Um, you know, it's, it's all very well to talk about, you know, who's going to go and build a, a, solar panel factory in, I don't know, Kharkiv region somewhere down the line. Um, but you know, who's going to build a new production line for artillery shells right now. Um, I think that's, that's an important thing. The other thing I'd like to note, um, if I may, looking at Russia, um, is that the russians have now formally outlawed um the world wildlife fund in russia um which is i mean i I find that particularly sad because i think that was an organization that um you know drew on the best of that country um some remarkable scientists worked there um, and they did a huge amount in a fairly non non non-political kind of way um to kind of preserve Russia's uh, wildlife diversity, and but but it's part of a pattern, obviously. I mean, it is it is about for the Kremlin now the elimination of any um, any kind of independent, non-sanctioned um, organization whatsoever. Um, so that is, you know, just another grim turn of the screw um, over in Moscow.
2: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast please consider following ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app and if you have a moment leave a review as it helps others find the show you can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message you can also contact us directly on twitter you can find our twitter handles in the description for this episode as ever we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gere with executive producers David Knowles and Louisa Wells.